Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us how God carefully took care of Adam and Eve's needs. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Okay, now, Genesis chapter 3, if you'd follow along here. And chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, Again, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now, God has gone to a lot of trouble to document this account for us of all the essential parts of what went wrong with our first parents. And we want to make sure that we don't miss it. And we don't miss what God wants to teach us through us. First of all, we see as we look at this that the serpent was in the garden. Now, maybe that's, you know earth-shattering for you, but the serpent was in the garden. That's something really to take take a hold of. This was an idyllic place. I mean, what could be more perfect than this Garden of Eden? I mean, everything was here. Everything man needed was here and more. Not only had God carefully looked over Adam and Eve's needs, but he also, and he gave those to them in the garden, but he also gave them more than they needed. He gave them in the garden for their pleasure, for their enjoyment. There was not only plants there that was good for food. They were beautiful plants, it's emphasized. They had a variety of scents. They had a variety of flavors. He not only gave them animals to serve them, but he gave them animals to play with, to have fun with. The garden was not just a place with on the surface wonders of what God had created in his creation. But this, the garden was a place where they could s- discover new wonders that God had made. So it was like a marvelous classroom, the garden was, that just never stopped to stimulate their thinking and their, their marvel and their creativity. If they became injured in any way, there God put the tree of life so that they could be healed. If for their fulfillment... And their satisfaction, God gave them a job to do in the garden, to take care of the garden and and to um, guard it. And at the end of the day, when their hearts just seemed to yearn for something more to life than just the work and the play, they had God himself as their good friend who came at the end of the day and met with them and talked with them. What could be better? What could have been a more fulfilling and satisfying life? What could have been a more happy existence than they had there in the Garden of Eden? They had not only themselves, Adam and Eve, as companions, they had God as their friend. But the serpent was in the garden. The serpent was in the garden. In that perfect place, the serpent was there. And God had warned them. 
He had warned them that even in that perfect place of the Garden of Eden, they needed to be on their guard. They needed to be on their guard. You know what that shows? That shows that when we think that we're in the best place, in the safest place, that we need to not let our guard down. We have to always be on our guard. We, well, I mean, think of the chapel just right now. We have just come from a wonderful surface. It was like heaven came down. It was just marvelous that we could have gone on. In fact, we almost did go on for long and long. Didn't want to stop. But it was just wonderful. And here we are together right now. We are gathered around the one we love, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are studying about him. We're breaking bread. We're drinking juice. We're remembering his great love to us and his death for us on the cross for our sins. We're singing hymns that praise him. We're hearing now his word taught. Sometimes I get into preaching. Anyway, we're just here as brothers and sisters And we're gathered around him. We're praying together. What could be more ideal? But the serpent was in the garden. And what could be more ideal than 12 hours ago, I'm sure, in the city of Jos in Nigeria, where Adina and Randy there as missionaries, what could have been more ideal than the evangelical church of winning all, just 12 minutes away from where Adina and Randy are? Just like this morning, just like we were this morning, just like we are this morning, when a suicide bomber drove into the compound this morning and killed two worshipers and wounded others, and Adina said the ground shook where their church was when it happened. Or at the same time, about six hours away from the Nigeria in a city called Boo, in a brethren assembly like ours, in a brethren assembly, there, again, same idyllic situation when a gunman entered this morning and killed one of the worshipers and wounded many others. The serpent was in the garden. We can never let our guard down. We can't. At home, together, where it's a place of spouse we love, children together around us, a place of love, a place of of care. We can't let our guard down because the serpent was in the garden. There's no place where the enemy cannot and will not strike. And so that's a call for us to be on our guard. As many of you know, we challenged the the largest lab in the world, $6 billion, Quest Diagnostics. We accused them, the company Scanabodies, I did, accused them and their subsidiary, Nichols Institute Diagnostics, of causing harm to a half a million dialysis patients in the U.S. through a faulty parathyroid hormone test. And in retaliation... They bought a patent that they used to sue us. So for eight long years, we fought in the U.S., we fought in Europe, and we fought in Japan to invalidate that patent. And in Japan, I remember that still today, our partners, Sumitomo Pharmaceuticals and us, finally got this patent invalidated in Japan. We got it invalidated here in Europe as well, but we got it invalidated in Japan. And so we all went out to a celebration dinner in Japan in a, in a private room in a restaurant. And in that room, they had this very large metal helmet. It was a Shogun helmet from the Shogun period. And they, they took this big helmet 
and they put it on me. It was really heavy. It, it wasn't, it was, anyway. They put, it up, put this big Shogun helmet on me, and they tied the chin straps rather tightly, I remember. And they stood me up there and, you know, hit me on my shoulders like this, and they said, Kantarsan, you know. I really felt like a Kantarsan in that thing. But anyway, they said to me, we have a famous Japanese proverb. They look at me and they said, Kata kabuta no owa shameo, which means after victory, tighten your helmet straps. In other words, never let your guard down. Never let your guard down because the enemy will come back. You may have had a victory. He will regroup and he will come back. And the fact that the serpent was in the garden tells us never let our guard down. As believers, that's what this song means when it says, My soul beyond thy guard, 10,000 foes arise. The hosts of sin are pressing hard to draw thee from the skies. Oh, watch and fight and pray. The battle ne'er give o'er. Renew it boldly every day and help divine implore. Never think the victory won, nor lay thine armor down. The work of faith will not be done till thou obtain the crown. So the devil carefully watched Eve in the garden. The devil watched Eve until he had the perfect opportunity to strike. How come Adam wasn't there when the devil spoke to Eve? Because the devil waited for Adam not to be there. How did Eve just happen to be by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? When the devil talked to her, because the devil waited till Eve was by the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what's the first word that Satan said to Eve in Genesis 3 1? What is it? What's the first word? Yay. He said, Yay. Yes. He says, Yay. Yes. What's that kind of indicate when he says, Yay or yes? It's kind of a continuation of some thought. Maybe Eve was sitting there thinking to herself about the tree and the devil was tracking her thoughts and he was quick to insert himself into her thoughts with the yes, and did God say? Maybe they were talking before, I don't know. And this is, we're just coming in the middle. But the devil has the ability to see what you and I are thinking about. Isn't that something? He has the ability to see what we're thinking about, and he has the ability to graph himself or to insert himself into our thoughts. And when he inserts himself into our thoughts, he does it by suggesting, by enticing, by luring, by tempting, and finally by pushing. That's what he does. Are you aware of that? Are you aware of that in your own mind and that he's doing this? How can we be kept from being enticed and lured and tempted and pushed by it? Well, we saw this last week, so we're not going to turn to it, but you remember in Proverbs 7, verses 4 and 5, where it says, Say unto wisdom, Thou art my sister. Call understanding thy kinswoman. Why? 
that they may keep thee from the strange woman, from the stranger which flattereth with her words. The Bible's wisdom, the Bible's understanding. You say to Bible wisdom, you're my sister. I dearly love you, my sister. I want to spend time with you. You say to Bible wisdom, you say to Bible understanding, you're my kinswoman, you're one of my kin, you're my friend. How can you and I be kept from the deceptive voice of the devil as Eve was not? Friendship with God. Friendship with God. Now, why didn't the devil tempt Adam first instead of Eve? He wanted to strike at Eve. He wanted to strike at Adam through Eve, but he wanted to strike at Eve, not Adam. Why? Okay, this one turn to. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them, that's wives, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. In this verse, how is the wife described? The weaker vessel. She's the weaker. But the word weaker, it's the word, it comes from the word stenos. Stenos, it's like it, we get our word strength. But we also get the word calisthenics, calisthenics from it. Callous is beautiful. Stenics is strength. Stenos is strength. It's beautiful strength. Calisthenics is strength. This is the word astenos, so without strength. So it means, it means without strength, without power, helpless, without force. That's what it means. Now, it's an interesting term because Paul used that exact same word, that exact same term, and I like you to turn to that. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Here's where Paul says... And he, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in estenos, in weakness, in the state of no power, in the state of without strength. Then he says, Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasures in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am a stenos, then am I strong. When I'm without force, when I'm helpless, when I'm sick, when I'm powerless, he says, then I'm strong. You know, in, in Japan, most of the churches that I've been to are filled with women. In fact, sometimes it's hard to even get men as leaders. Why? Because those women know themselves to be weak and need of God. Show me a person who thinks that he is strong, and I'll show you a person who thinks he does not need God. Show me a person who knows he's weak, and I'll show you a person who's ready to say, I need God. Tom, today you brought out how God had taken time to note what Adam and Eve needed and that he went to the trouble of providing for those needs. You know, whenever I go to restaurants, I always look around to see who gives thanks before they eat, and I'm surprised at how few people give thanks. So as believers, what is our safeguard to not become unappreciative or ungrateful for what God does? You know, that's a very real danger for us. And as you said, when you go to restaurants and you actually see how few people really do give thanks, then you can ask the question, Does that spirit 
of being ungrateful? Is it coming to me? What can I do in order to 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 guard against this prevailing spirit of being not appreciative to God? You know, there's two verses. The first one that really helps us is in 1 Chronicles 16.8, where we are told, Give thanks unto the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deed among the people. The first thing that comes out so obvious when we look at this verse is that this is something that we do. We are called to give. In other words, it's like we're holding it inside of us, and it's our choice. Will you give it up? And God says, Give the thanks to the Lord. You know, giving thanks is more than just saying, now, Lord, thank you. We, we ask you to bless this food, nourish it to our bodies. Amen. It's more than just a rote prayer. It's really from the heart saying, oh, God, I've got within me thanks that I need to, Lord, release and give to you. So it's a giving of the thanks to God. And then it says, secondly, that we are to call upon his name. We know the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so we are to call upon his name. Lord Jesus, we call upon your name for the needs in our lives, for the for just the times when we want to tell you how thankful we are, for when we tell you that we love you. That is involved also in calling upon his name. And then it says that we are to make known his deeds among the people. Talk about why we give thanks, but not from a context of saying, well, I give thanks because. No, but just say, you know, uh, this is so wonderful about the Lord. And then you speak to other people, whether they're saved, whether they're lost, it's the, is make known his deeds among the people. It can be to glory, to boast, to brag in what God has done in our lives, or it can be in what he's done in the past. You know, I just can't wait to tell you. Let me tell you how God took this poor blind person who called them and is an him as the son of David and healed him from his blindness. David, king of Israel, says in Psalm 116, 12 to 13, what shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Friend, if you have never called on the name of the Lord to be saved, that's called taking the cup of salvation. That is rendering to God for all the benefits he's done is to be saved from your sins. Tom, today you mentioned how God put animals on the earth to serve man and to be for his pleasure. Why did God put animals on the earth? You know, it's a very, very good question. And, you know, the issue with the animals on the earth, as God did put them there, and they're there to serve man, is that God always wants to put in in our lives similarities or analogies to teach us about himself, about spiritual truths. And so he's always asking us when we see things, that he's almost like saying to us, can you see? Can you really see? Can you see beyond what you're seeing? Do you see the analogy here? Do you see the similarity here? Do you see the parable here? And so what God is doing with the animals is that he puts them on earth, and it's almost he's saying to us, do you see? Those animals are there for your pleasure. We get pleasure when we have a pet dog, when the, when the pet dog runs to greet us, when we throw ball with the pet dog. That's for our pleasure. God says, do you know that you are created for my pleasure so that we can spend time together just like you spend time to, with, the, with the animal? And then as the animals serve you, do you know that you have been created to serve me and that as you do that, you will be the happiest in your life? You know, Moses wanted to make this so very clear to the Jewish people that what he did 
was he said to the Jewish people in Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, Moses said, And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? Boy, what a question. Isn't that great? Isn't it really interesting to sit there and say, What does God require from me? Well, Moses says, I'll tell you. Now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul? That's what God requires of us. First, to fear him. Take God seriously. He is an awesome God, one to be held in awe. Fear God. Give him his rightful place. Walk in all his ways. He's told us what his ways are so that we can be like God. Walk in his ways and then love him. Love him because he loves you. Have that friendship with God. Have that love relationship with him and serve him with all your heart, with all your soul. No half-heartedness, but a complete serving of God. Amen. Tom, today you also brought out the simple truth that the serpent was in God's Garden of Eden. The obvious question is, why did God allow the serpent to be in the garden? Yeah, isn't that something? I mean, God really, he has the power. He could have said, no serpent in my garden. This is going to be a beautiful garden. I've just created this garden. It's going to be perfect. It was. It was the Garden of Eden. So why in the world was the serpent found in God's garden? Well, obviously, the answer is because God wanted the serpent to be in his garden. That's why the serpent was in his garden. Then the next question is, since the serpent brought about so much trouble, what in the world did God have in mind when he allowed the serpent to be in the garden? What was God's purpose? You know, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 starts off with these words, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That's God's will for our lives. God wants us to be strong in him and in the power of his might. And how are we going to be strong unless we've got some challenge or some obstacle that we have to be strong against? That was the purpose of the serpent being in the garden. So he says, how are you to be strong against the serpent? How are you to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might? And he explains, you be strong by putting on the whole armor of God, God's armor, what God has provided. That, he says, you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That's why the devil was allowed in the garden. That's why his wiles or his strategies or his ways were in the garden, the devil's ways so that we could stand against them. He says, for we wrestle not. God wants us to wrestle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high place. God's intention, God's desire for us is that we would be strong through wrestling. Wrestling against these powers of darkness of this world, these rulers of darkness of this world, against the spiritual wickednesses. He says, I want you to learn, this is the idea behind verse 13, that how to take unto you the whole armor of God so that you'll be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. God is training us. He is training us so that we can, we'll be trained with him because we're going to reign with him and he wants strong ones to reign with him. And the only way they can be strong is if they stand against the evil day. 
He says in verse 14, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the devil. God prevent could prevent those fiery darts of the wicked one from coming to us, but he says, I want them there so that you'll learn how you should take the shield of faith and be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And then he says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. God wants us to be skillful in using his sword of the spirit, skillful in using the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication of the, for all saints. God wants us to be strong in prayer. And God knows that there's nothing going to make us like praying Christians unless we've got a, a wily devil that's hot on our trail and trying to bring us down. And since God knows that, he allowed the devil to be in the garden so that he could make Adam and Eve strong. And he allows the devil to have access to us and to come to us with darts, to come to us as wrestlers, to come to us with, uh, with, with terrible fighting so that we'll be strong in him. Thank you for joining us today. Join us again tomorrow as Tom Cantor continues his Genesis series. Now, do you have a Jewish friend or know of a Jewish person that needs to be reached with the gospel? Would you like to give them a gospel gift? We can provide that free from Israel Restoration Ministries. Just call us today at 1-800-247-3051. We can help you to reach a lost Jewish person by providing them with the Tom Cantor Testimony DVD and booklet. Now, many of us know Jewish people, whether it's those we work with or family members or doctors or lawyers or businessmen. So help to reach them today by calling us at 1-800-247-3051. You can also go to friendshipwithgod.org or israelrestoration.org to learn more about Tom Cantor or Israel Restoration Ministries. Thanks for listening and join us tomorrow.